my name is Nicole, and I'm a missionary from the McMaster region. Um, and it's really awesome to be here with you guys today. Um, if you've been tracking along in our daily devos that we've been reading through as a church, you'll know that we just finished the book of Acts and Ecclesiastes, um, and we're starting Romans. And if you don't have one of these or you haven't heard of them yet, talk to someone who's sitting next to you, and I'm sure that they'll get you one. Um, it's been a really big joy to go through these as a church, and um, that's what we're going to be preaching on today. So... We're going to jump right on in. Today we're in Romans 2, verses 1 to 4, and um, we're just going to read them together. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word and just for the gift that it is to be able to learn about you, um, to learn about ourselves, and to just worship you. And I pray today um, that we would really just be um, more in awe of who you are, that we would see um, your character in new ways, um, see ourselves in new ways, and just see the hope that you've given us in new ways. Um, I pray that your spirit would just be here among us and that you would just speak and touch our hearts today. Amen. Do you ever remember a time growing up where um, when you were a kid, you would do something you knew you weren't supposed to do and then you'd get caught and your instant reaction was to blame someone else who may or may not even have been there? I certainly did that. Um, I was the type of kid who was very much so a goody two-shoes and tried not to get in trouble often, and I didn't. But when I did get into trouble, um, I became a master at projecting blame onto someone else so that I could avoid getting in trouble. And there was this one time in particular that my sister and I came up with this really bizarre game um, that we called the Barbie Olympics, where we entered them into a diving competition. And essentially what that meant was we lined them up into four groups on one side of the room and then threw them as hard as we could across the room onto the couch. And Unfortunately, our aim was pretty horrendous, so we missed the couch a lot of times, and the Barbies would go um, straight over and into the wall behind the couch or the window and destroy the blinds. So it was a little bit of a mess, and when my dad came home that night and saw it, um, he was pretty upset, understandably, and unfortunately, we weren't in a very good position to argue our way out of it because the evidence was right there. The Barbies were still lined up waiting for us to come and restart the Olympics after dinner. Um, but when he came up and asked us what had happened, our immediate response was, mom told us we could do it. And somehow that worked and we were allowed to continue playing and it was fine. Um, and this is just a silly example, but I think we see this in kids a lot of the times. I have nannied and babysat kids for my whole life, um, and one of the most common things that I hear from him, from them are he did it or she did it. And there just seems to be this, this instinct almost to um, project the blame onto someone else. 
and to refuse to take responsibility. We see that in children at a young age, and we also see that in adults quite a lot. I know in conversations that I've had personally um, or that other people have told me about, there are so many times when chores aren't done and we blame someone or a group project goes poorly and one person is thrown under the bus or a whole host of other examples that we can come up with, some that have less significant consequences and some that have large consequences. But no matter what, there seems to be this inability to take responsibility for the things that we've done and this desire to just cast blame and judgment onto others. In this passage, we can see that Paul saw this occurring in the Roman church. This letter was written later on in his life, so he had seen and done a lot of things. He planted many churches, he'd evangelized to countless people, um, and he understood the human condition pretty well, but also what the biggest threat was to um, the church, and that was disunity. But in this passage, we see clearly that this was a very big threat, that there were two groups of Christians, um, some one group from Jewish religious background and one from a non-Jewish religious background, all of whom are now Christians in the same church. And what was happening was one group was pointing fingers at the other group and casting judgment upon them. And, and this was a huge issue that Paul was identifying. And in verse 1, we can see this. Paul says, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Paul recognized that there was a lot of hypocrisy that was happening. These Christians were casting judgment upon one another and then going and doing the very same thing. And he doesn't really pull punches here. He's pretty clear and direct about what is happening. The consequence of this, the consequence of continuing to cast judgment upon one another, but living in the same sin as they were, was condemnation. What Paul is really pointing out here is that no one is without excuse and that all will be judged by the standard which, with which they judge. And this wasn't the first time that this had happened. Earlier in Matthew 7, when Jesus was walking on the earth, he actually had the same conversation in a sermon where he says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Do you see the hypocrisy that both Jesus and Paul identified here? There was this issue going on with Christians of being able to identify very clearly the sin in other people's lives, but refusing to acknowledge the sin in their own life. And in doing so, they continued to live in sin. And there was disunity that was happening in the church. This was preoccupying them from being able to do what they were supposed to be doing, what God was inviting them to do, which was loving him and worshiping him, serving others, telling people about Jesus, and building one another up as a church rather than tearing each other down. In this passage, what we really see through the whole thing is Paul reminding the church of just how much they need Jesus. And that's kind of the big takeaway for today. We desperately need Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about. And the way that Paul points this out is through four primary things. The holiness of God, 
the helplessness of humanity, the hope in Jesus, and the need for humility. So Paul starts by emphasizing the holiness and sovereignty of God. Verses 2 and 3 say, We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? What Paul is pointing out here is that God's judgment is based on the truth. This is not a truth. It's not one truth of many. It is the only truth. And therefore, it can be trusted and it must be trusted. See, God is righteous and just. It's part of his character. And he's the only one who can justly judge other people. And the reason for this is because his justice, contrary to worldly justice, is based on an eternal, unchanging justice that is built upon the laws of this creation. He is unchanging, and therefore his justice is also unchanging. And this is very different than worldly justice, what we see happening. And on top of this, rather than just examining the deeds that people do, God actually examines the hearts of people. And this is very different than what we see happening in court cases. It's primarily about the actions and not so much about your intent, although that, there is nuance there. But God looks first and foremost at the heart, and the actions are a reflection of that. <clears throat> so what Paul is saying here is that no one can escape this judgment and that God is the only one who can actually judge people because he's the only one who knows the hearts of people. His justice is eternally unchanging and true. And the reason for part of this is because he is sovereign and holy. To be sovereign is to be fully in control over all things. God created the world, and when he created the world, he was fully in control. And in the same way, he is fully in control now. When he speaks, creation obeys, and what he says will come to pass. And what he has said is that one day, all of us will stand before God and be judged for our lives, the way that we lived, the way that we worship God or didn't. It's not escapable. So that's to be sovereign. To be holy involves two primary different components. And the first is to be completely distinct and set apart from everything else around you. When we say that God is holy, we mean that he is entirely incomparable to anything else. He is more beautiful, more good, more holy, utterly matchless to anything that we can even begin to comprehend, utterly matchless to us for sure. To compare God to humanity is almost like comparing a minor league baseball team to the NBA, um, National Basketball Association. Not only are they in two different leagues of talent and skill, but they're also entirely different sports. So you can't really make any sort of real comparisons here. And in the same way, we can't really compare God to humans because he is so matchless, so set apart, so good. He's that distinct from all of creation and all of humanity. So holiness is to be set apart and distinct, and holiness is also to be completely pure. The opposite of holiness is sinfulness. Holiness and sinfulness are, are completely mutually exclusive. They can't overlap. They can't be in the same place as one another. You cannot be holy and sinful. So God, who is perfectly entirely holy, cannot sin. And in the same way that he cannot sin, he cannot be in the presence of sin. Our God is a perfect, holy God. 
He's entirely just and is the only one worthy of judging the hearts of the people in this world. He will come to judge every person who lives, and as Jesus and Paul point out, those who judge one another without examining their own hearts will be judged accordingly. What Paul is really identifying here is that there is a hypocrisy that is present because there is an unwillingness to examine one's heart, but there also is a tendency to elevate oneself into the place of God. So he starts by talking about the holiness of God, and then he talks about the helplessness of humanity. In Romans 1, Paul outlines the whole story of humanity, where he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. What does that mean? In other words, God, holy, perfect God, created the entire world, and he also created humans. And he loved humans so much that in his grace, he actually revealed part of his character through his creation. We can look outside and we can see parts of God, his power, his beauty, his majesty, his love. We can look at people and get glimpses into this as well. And what a privilege this is that God would be willing to reveal himself to us. But what was our response to that as humans? Our response was to become prideful and to replace him, to replace him as the only one who is worthy of worship with something else, something that is temporary and powerless, something that only is there to enslave us, not to free us. In our foolishness, we chose to reject God and to receive sin. And in doing so, we became enslaved to the things of this world that we now worship. To worship something other than God is to sin. That's what it means very simply. We reject God of his rightful place on the throne of our hearts as our God and our King and our Lord, and we decide to make someone or something, maybe even ourselves, God instead. And like we talked about earlier, sinfulness and holiness cannot come together. They are entirely separate. So as we sin, what happens is we're unable to be in the presence of God. The holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. So our relationship with him that we had is fractured and we're separated from him. We're left only with sin and not with God. <clears throat> And I want to pause here for a moment because to be separated from God might not sound like a big deal to some, but it is a big deal because God is, God is love. He is hope. He is joy. He is peace. He is everything good in this world. And sin is the complete opposite of that. It is darkness. It is death. It is destruction and pain and suffering. And so when we're separated from God, all of these good things that come with God, that means that we're left only with sin. That means we're left only with pain and suffering. 
And that is what awaits us in eternity, pain and suffering and death, not the goodness, the love, the joy of God. And that's what we deserve because we have sinned against him. Sin is something that every single human struggles with. Every human has, who has ever lived has struggled with it. And because of this, all of us are equally worthy of receiving the wrath and judgment of God. Because God is a just God. He will seek justice. His justice is holy and perfect. And what that means is that we are deserving of separation. That is our just punishment and that is what we all deserve. So what Paul is really trying to point out here is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are equally guilty and none can escape the true judgment of God. So there is no elevation of oneself because we are all equal in this sense. We are all equally sinful. We are all equally guilty. And there is nothing that we can do to earn our way back to God. Remember that God is holy and perfect and we have sinned. We have rejected him. And there is no way for us to earn holiness because we can't. We are sinning every single day. And so we can't make our way up to God. What we need is for God to come to us. And that's what he did. This can sound hopeless when we think of judgment and what is coming and separation from God. But there is hope and that hope is in Jesus. So Paul starts by acknowledging God's holiness Then he moves and talks about the helplessness and sinfulness of humanity. And now he talks about the hope that is in Jesus. God is a God of justice. His wrath is very real. His judgment will come. But he is also gentle, kind, and patient because he loves us. And because he loves us, like I just said, he did actually give us a way and an opportunity to be in relationship with him by coming down to us. So what he did was he sent Jesus to come, to take on human flesh, human weakness, to be tempted and tried. And yet he is the only one who has lived a holy and perfect life. He was innocent, completely innocent. He was the only one worthy of being in relationship with the Father. But what happened was that even after living a perfect life, because he loved us so much, he went to the cross, he died, And he took on the full wrath of God, the full punishment that we deserve. And in doing so, we are able to be reconciled into relationship with God, which is such good news. Holiness and sinfulness cannot mix together. But when Jesus died on the cross, he made a way for us to be made holy once again. He gave us a choice and the chance to be reconciled to God through his sacrifice. He gave us hope. Hope that comes from choosing to say, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, and to continuously repent of our sins. Paul highlights this. He talks about that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance because through repentance, we are able to be back in relationship with him. What is repentance? To repent is to turn around completely to be headed in a new direction. So we are sinning and we're walking away from God and then we repent and we turn around and we walk back towards God, back towards holiness, back towards him. It's to stand before God, confessing our sins before him, acknowledging who he is, that he is God and we are not, and then committing to live our lives as God has commanded us as best as we're able to in obedience. And we do this, we repent, we try and live as best we can, not 
to earn our way back into sal- into salvation, but actually to respond to the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And as we do this, we find so much freedom and joy in him. Repentance is an ongoing daily thing. It's not a one and done thing. Since we're human, we continue to sin over and over and over again. But this really amazing thing happens that as we repent, as we confess, as we learn more about God and spend time with him, we actually are able to be refined by God to become more like Jesus. Does that mean we'll be perfect? No. But we get to be more like him. We get to be made more holy and we get to love him more. I've heard a number of people, I've had a number of conversations with non-Christians about the idea of repentance. And what I often hear is, oh, well, if we can just repent, then I'll just say I'm sorry to Jesus and do whatever I want. And that completely misses the point. Because remember at the beginning how we talked about God is a judge who judges the heart and not just the actions. So he knows if our repentance is genuine. We can't just say, oh, I've done this thing, I'm sorry, God, and then go on living our lives. Because part of repentance and confession is confessing that Jesus is Lord, that God is God, and that we are not. We can't fool God. He is way out of our league in terms of intelligence and wisdom. He doesn't require our perfection, but he does ask for humble, obedient hearts that love him and worship him as king. Through Jesus, we're saved, and all who give their lives to him and repent of their sins are saved. So Paul reminds the Roman church of God's holiness, of our helplessness, and of the hope that we have in Jesus. He counters the culture of the world that was influencing the church to critique one another, to throw one another under the bus, to refuse to take responsibility, and ultimately to make themselves God rather than honoring God as God. He shows the Roman church that this isn't the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is far greater. It's a life of recognizing and acknowledging who God is and worshiping him and then giving our lives to him, walking in obedience, allowing him to be Lord and not us. Ultimately, it's a life of humility. What I hope is becoming clear is that we can't do this on our own. We really need God to be able to do any of this. We're imperfect, sinful beings, and apart from Jesus, we have no chance of being saved. But as we look to him, we find hope and salvation and freedom. And in this freedom, we're set free from enslavement to the things of this world. In order to be desperate for God, in order to recognize our need for him, we have to be humble. And we can see this in Jesus. Jesus was the only one who lived a perfect, holy life. And so he is our example for how to live a holy and perfect life. And what we see is that Jesus' life was entirely lived out of servanthood. It was a life of humility. It was a life where he came not to elevate himself, not to make himself great, but to worship and glorify the Father, to serve, to love, to sacrifice, to lay down his life because he knew that God was worth it. And the only way to do that is by living in humility. And Paul, in another book to the Philippian church, says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus did not come to make himself great. Jesus came to honor and glorify the Father. Jesus knew that he could not do any of this on his own. His life was not easy. He was tempted. He suffered. It was very, very difficult. And ultimately, he died. And the only way that he could have done that is if he was humble, recognizing his need for God, recognizing that God was to be glorified. And so that's what Paul is inviting the believers to do, to be like Christ, to not make themselves equal to God in any way, but to humbly serve as, to live as a servant, pouring out their lives in obedience to him by serving him and others and worshiping him in every moment of their lives. Paul is encouraging them to examine their hearts, to check who was really Lord over their life, who were they worshiping, and inviting them back to Jesus. Jesus' time on earth wasn't easy, and he really needed God. He was fully God and fully human, and if he really needed God, the Father, then we certainly really need him. Like, who are we to think that we can do this without him? We can't. It's impossible. We also don't have to, which is really freeing. We must come before God humbly recognizing that he is God and we are not, that we need him because we can't do this on our own we weren't created to. So what does this mean? It means we're not the judge of others. It means we don't get to put others down and lift ourselves up because it's not about us. It's about God. It's about worshiping him. We recognize that we're not lords over our own life. We don't know everything. We're not all-powerful, but there is one who is all-powerful. There is one who knows everything. There is one who is God. And even this, even, even recognizing this and acknowledging that God is God, we can't do that on our own. We really need God. So we get to humbly come before him and ask for help to do these things. We don't have to do it by ourselves. We get to do it with him. But in order to do it with him, we have to recognize our need for him. We have to lay down our lives for him. Although we deserve death, although we deserve to be entirely separated from him, we have actually been raised to new life in Christ when we accept him as Lord and Savior. We walk in freedom and hope. Is it easy? No. Are we perfect? Certainly not. But Jesus is helping us and he is worth it. And as we give our lives to him, continuing to be humbled, continuing to acknowledge that he is God, we will be amazed at the freedom that comes. We don't have to strive. We don't have to do it on our own. We just get to worship him. Some of you may have never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're afraid, unsure, or even too proud. Maybe he's been here. Maybe he's been knocking at the door of your heart, asking to be let in, but you haven't wanted to or haven't been willing to listen. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, to pause and ask him if he's there, to ask him if he's trying to come in, and then to talk to someone, talk to your simple church leader, talk to your skirt, talk to a missionary, talk to someone. We don't have to do this alone. We get to do this together. If you're scared, that's okay. But I want to encourage you 
to talk to someone and be willing to ask the question, is Jesus trying to ask me to give my life to him? If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to consider confessing with others. There's power in confession and there's power in confession with other believers. So this week, Simple Church leaders, maybe you can even do this at the beginning or end of huddle. Take time to confess your sins with one another, with your simple church, before each other and before God, asking him to forgive you, repenting, turning around, turning away from your sin, turning back to him. There is freedom in this. And there is power in confession. As we repent, we humbly confess that he is Lord and that we are not. And there is beauty in that. So come to Jesus' church. Come to him with your confessions and your repentance. Come to him humbly in awe of who he is, recognizing that he is God. He will receive you and he will forgive you because he loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are God and that we are not. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in creation and that we get to know you through creation. We get to know you through the Bible, that we get to walk with you, that we get to live lives of humility following your example. And I pray that you would just speak to us today, Lord. Show us where we need to confess and where we need to repent. Give us courage to do that together. Give us courage to ask questions. Give us courage to say yes to you, Lord. I just pray that you would be with us this week, that you would continue to, to show us where we're being proud, where we're rejecting you, um, and that you would help us to honor you, to glorify you, to worship you by laying our lives down for you just as you did for us. May we be a church that walks in humility, recognizing who you are and who we are. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. That's all from me, church. I hope you have a great week. Be blessed.